Boy, I love that song. It's good to have you all with us today. We got a big crowd. It's good to have you all with us today. We're very happy you're here. I hope the things we discuss will be a benefit to you. But first, I want to remind everyone that our BBS starts tonight. I hope that you will uh, be present, if at all possible, uh, and invite your friends uh, to come and uh, join us here. Um, things that will go on this week will affect people for the rest of their lives, and we want to be a part of it if we can. Uh, the Lord cannot be aware of every sin committed. I think most people would probably think this way. Do you mean to tell me that the Lord knows when little Johnny pulls Sister Susie's pigtails? Are you saying that he's aware of all things? Well, the answer to that is yes, I'm saying it. Uh, well, do you understand it? Explain it. I can't explain it because I don't understand it. I'm talking about something I have no knowledge of at all other than what the Lord has told us. Uh, I can't fathom God. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just a man. And as a man, I'm limited to my physical senses, all my experiences in this world. And that which transcends this world, such as God, is far beyond my ability to comprehend. I don't know. I don't know how tall God is. I don't know. I don't know if he got big muscles. I don't know. These are things that we cannot know. How does God see everything always? I don't know. But he says he does. And I take him at his word. If there's anything I've ever done right in my life, I think it's, other than being a Christian, of course, I think it has to do with... Uh, Studying to the point where I can take God at his word. I've got enough confidence in the word of God that I know when it says something, it's telling us the truth. I spent the biggest part of my adult life studying the Bible. I've examined it, I've looked at it critically, and, and, and the one thing I've, I've, I've come to a conclusion of is that only a divine person could have written this book. There's no way it could have been written by a human being. That was always the thing that troubled me so much early on in my Christian walk. But uh, I satisfied that in my mind, and I'm certain that what the Bible says is true, and God says, he sees all things everywhere in the most spectacular ways. He knows the hair of our head. That's one thing that really blows my mind. He knows the hair of our head. We're always growing hair and losing hair. and God always knows the count. I just find that absolutely amazing. Uh, how does he do it? I don't know. I really don't know. But I know he does. I know he does. That's what I want to talk about a little bit. And that's this. We can't hide our sins. Okay, that's what this is all going to boil down to. We can't hide our sins. Um, we, we think we can. I've done it a hundred times. Uh, commit a sin and try to ignore it. Uh, try to forget about it. Hope it go away. Uh, that nobody would ever be aware of it. 
But it's not possible. It's not possible. Uh, greater men than me have tried in the past, and they were unsuccessful. Um, because you can't. You just can't do it. And I want you to understand that because I want you to know whenever you commit a sin, you've got one of two options. You could try to bury it or you can confess it, one or the other. Now, my advice is going to be ultimately that you ought to confess it. Get it off the books, get it out of your way, get it out of your mind. And never have to fool with that again. Don't put off getting your sins forgiven. Because we, we can't get away with it. We just can't. For God so loved the world. I've emphasized the word so. I did that for a reason. That's the biggest little word in the Bible, I think. This is emphasizing how much God loves the Bible. I mean, loves the world. It could be as though the Lord is saying, look how much I love the world. And when he says the world, he's talking about people. He's not talking about the earth. Earth is another word. This word has to do with humanity. His love for humanity is so outrageous that he gave his only begotten son that we could live through him. That's just how enormous the divine love of God is. He's got so much vested in us. He has so much interest in us. He wants to know when we feel good, when we feel bad. High and low, he wants to know everything about us, and he does. Especially us, because we belong to him. We are his, as we discussed this morning. He is our master. We are his servants. And he watches over us with a very close eye because of his great interest in us. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, the Lord is stressing to Joshua just how wonderfully amazing his love for Joshua is. Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and of good courage. Be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, that you may prosper wherever you go, Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then, then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So be strong and of good courage. The point I want us to understand is this is God's expression for all of us. He has this interest that we are his children. And he has an interest stronger than we do in our own offsprings. His love for us is beyond our ability to comprehend. And he, he knows. It's not, it's not as though he's spying on us. 
He knows because of his great interest in us and in our success. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, the Hebrew author said, He himself, that is God, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said that to you, Jimmy. He's talking to you. The Lord said, Jimmy, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear. Whoever you are, this is God speaking to you. Now we're doing it through my mouth and these words on the board, but it's God speaking to you. He wants you to know how he feels about you, how important you are to him. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's talking to you. He's always going to be. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you are. The Lord said, I'm going to be right there with you. I suppose that's why he knows everything that we do. He's omnipresent. He sees it all. He understands it all. But despite what the Lord has told us ahead of time, people still have doubts. Sometimes doubts creep into my mind, and I have to rethink a little bit. Sometimes the people in the Bible, some of the great characters in the Bible, doubts crept into their mind, and they had to rethink their thoughts once again. I suppose that's natural, that we would find it difficult to understand something that is so far above our understanding and that we would have to struggle with it because it, it, it's enormous when we talk about the Lord. He's just enormous. History testifies that some do doubt the divine present. I'll run through a few uh, examples uh, just to make a point. There's a whole lot more that could be drawn from, but we'll just get a few. Adam and Eve, for example, they were hiding in the garden. What? Hiding in the garden? You know, the garden was, uh, it wasn't heaven, but it was a type of heaven. I mean, it was the greatest place on earth. There was no pain, no suffering, no sickness. There were no tornadoes, no hurricanes. There were no thunderstorms, no lightning. You weren't going to get eaten by a tiger. It was... The closest thing you could get to on earth that would be like heaven itself. So why are Adam and Eve hiding? Well, you know why, as I do. It's because they violated the will of God. He told them not to eat the forbidden fruit, and they ate it. And once they ate it, they looked down at themselves and they thought, I don't have any clothes on. And they heard God. He was coming, and they ran. They hid. And God said, Adam, where are you? Adam called out to the Lord. He said, I was naked, and I hid myself. And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? Adam was in such a state of innocence that he had no idea he was naked, much like a little baby. They don't know they're naked. They get away from you, they'll run all over the place with nothing on. And we've all seen that happen. 
Well, that's the way Adam and Eve were. They didn't know they were naked. They didn't know what sin was. They didn't know what was right, what was wrong. They didn't have an understanding of all such things. Nobody ever told them. But once they said they were naked, once they understood the difference between naked and not being naked and felt guilt because they were naked, the Lord knew they ate what they were told not to eat. Ah, oh, the Lord knew it before he asked them. He knew it when they did it. He was aware of it. He just made them confess it to him, that's all. We read about a guy named Achan. When the Israelites took the city of Jericho, they were told not to take any of the possessions. Don't take their stuff. Leave their stuff alone. We're going to go in, and, and the Jehovah's going to make the walls of the city fall down, and when they do, the army's going to go in, they're going to kill them. Now, after they kill them, when you go in, don't take their refrigerator, don't take their stove. You leave their motorcycles alone. You go into Jericho, you kill the people, then you leave Jericho, and you assemble where I'll show you. Well, there's a lot of good stuff in Jericho. There was a lot of good stuff. And when you look around, you see a you know, pearl necklace over here, a diamond earring over here. And there was so much good stuff just laying everywhere. Achan saw some stuff, and he thought, hmm, boy, I'd like to have that stuff. Nobody will know. Nobody will see. Nobody will be the wiser. So he took that stuff. He took it into his tent. He dug a hole in the tent, and he buried that stuff and covered it over. And then when they had to find out who had taken the forbidden thing, the Lord directed them to Achan. Because he knew what Achan did. He saw him do it. Nobody else saw him. Joshua didn't see him. None of the people saw him. They'd have told on him because they were in trouble. They done lost a lot of men when they tried to take the city of Ai because of that sin that was committed. If somebody would have saw him, they would have squealed on him. But they didn't see him. He got away with it. Except God, God saw him. He didn't say nothing, but he saw him. And then through a series of events, he made Achan confess to the sin. David and Bathsheba, we know what lengths David went to to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. He didn't want anybody to know. I know why. He was the king. And the king shouldn't be with the wife of a valiant soldier like Uriah. That's just not right. Uriah's out there fighting a war. And David's at home with his wife. That's not right. That's not right. But David didn't care about right and wrong. He did what he should have done. And then he tried to cover it up. And David, David had so many people at his disposal to help him. And he put him to work. But he couldn't cover it up. Because the Lord finally, a year later, he got away with it, right? A year later, God sent the prophet Nathan to him. Accusing him of being the man who committed a sin against his brother. God knew what David and Bathsheba did. He was there. He could see him. He was fully aware. He told 
people not to do that unless you're married. If you're married, it's okay. But if you're not married, I don't want you doing that kind of stuff. Well, David did it anyway. And God witnessed it himself. Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. I, boy, I, I can kind of relate to Jonah. Jonah hated the Ninevite people. They were mean. Man, they were mean. They were bad. They were, they were killing Israelites. They were bad people. And he hated them with a passion. It's kind of like the terrorists who, who strike at our country. They, they make our blood boil with the antics they pull. Well, that's the way Jonah felt towards the Ninevites. He hated them. And God said, I want you to go to Nineveh, Jonah, and I want you to preach a message of repentance. And Jonah thought with it, re repentance. And then Jonah thought, if I preach repentance, and if they repent, God, being the person he is, God is going to forgive them. I don't want God to forgive them. I want him to destroy them. So Jonah didn't want to be the messenger of hope. So he ran. And he hid himself from God on a boat. And God found him. He created a fish to catch him. And that fish spit him back up on dry ground. He thought he could get away from God, but he was wrong. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to be, they wanted to be seen as good givers. How's that? People needed help, as it's always that way. There are always people who need the generosity of other people. And because that was the case, there were people that was giving large sums of money, property, whatever, to the apostles to be dispersed among those in need. Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. They got, let's say, $10,000 out of it. And they thought about that $10,000, you know, they kind of hated to give it all up. So what they did was they, they put 5000 in their checking account, and they went to the apostles, and they said, we'll give you 5000 that's what we got out of the land. And Peter asked them, they were given a chance. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, asked them, did you sell this land for such amount of money? And uh, Ananias said, yeah, for, for that amount, $5,000. And Peter said, you lied to God. And he dropped dead right there on the spot. They took him out and buried him. His wife's fire come on in. He asked her the same question. Did you sell your land for such amount of money? She didn't know anything about her husband. Did you sell your land for such amount of money? She said, yes, that's what we did. We sold it for $5,000. Peter said, you lied to God. She dropped dead, too. They both tried to hide what they did, and they did hide it. Nobody knew. Nobody. They pulled it off without a hitch, except God knew what they got for that property. He knew what they said, but he knew what they actually got, and then they lied to him about it. They thought he didn't see. They thought he didn't know. They thought they could get away with it, but they were wrong. They died. All these people supposed, or perhaps hoped, they could avoid the consequences of their sin. It's such a, it's such a little thing. I don't want to. I don't want to 
ask for forgiveness for this. It's such a little thing. Or it's an embarrassing thing. I don't want to ask for forgiveness for this. Sometimes we don't feel sorry for sinning. There's a lot of reasons why we don't ask for forgiveness. But this much is true. The Lord keeps a record. Now in the Bible we're shown where the Lord keeps a record on paper. But, uh, you know, we all know that the Lord keeps a record in his own mind. He knows good deeds. He knows bad deeds. He knows everything about us. He knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing he doesn't know. And we hope he doesn't know this. But if we think that way, we're wrong. If we try to pull the wool over God's eyes, we're going to get caught. He's told us we get caught. He's given us these examples demonstrating that we would get caught. And then he told us to beware. Paul wrote, whatever things were written before, these things were written for our learning. The Lord wants us to know that we can't hide sin unless we have sin forgiven. And then it's done away with forever. But until we ask for forgiveness, we still bear the weight of our guilt. And it'll go with us to the day of judgment. Wisdom demands that we confess our faults. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't, don't lie to yourself. Don't believe your own lie. You can't pull wool over God's eyes. You just can't do it. Because whatever a man sows, that is what he's going to reap. We understand. So uh, corn, you get corn. So potatoes, you get potatoes. And so it goes in life. Whatever we sow, it's coming back to us. Our sin will come right back to us, if not before, in the day of judgment. As embarrassed as all these people were that their sin came back and exposed them, they were fortunate because they had time then to ask for forgiveness. But if we go to the day of judgment and our sin comes up and meets us face to face, we have nothing to say, nothing to do. If you do not do what the Lord requires of you, Moses said, take note, because you have sinned against the Lord. Well, I didn't sin against the Lord, I sinned against Jimmy. No, when you sin against Jimmy, you sin against the Lord. It's not just against Jimmy. When you sin against Jimmy, you, you sin against the church. When you sin against Jimmy, you, you, you sin against the Christ and all things that are holy. It's not a little thing. It's a real big thing when we commit sin. Moses said, take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Find you out. Your sin will hunt you down, and you will come face to face with it one day. Maybe in this world, maybe in the next but your sin will find you out. You will have to deal with it again because you can't hide it that good. In 2 Kings chapter 5, I want to show you an example. It's just a bit longer. We read about a fellow named Naaman. He's a good man, real good man, actually. Well, depends on who you were, I guess. 
From the Syrian point of view, he was a good man. Now Naaman, he was commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The Lord had, a, had an interest in Naaman. Naaman had leprosy. And, of course, he hated having leprosy. He was alienated, separated from all the people. And uh, he, he really wanted to get rid of it. Anyway, word came to him that there was a Jewish girl who knew how to get rid of leprosy. So he went to her and he asked her. And she said, yeah, there's a prophet down in Israel that if you go to him, he can tell you what to do to get rid of that leprosy. Naaman was tickled to death. He went to the king. He asked for permission to go to Israel because there was a fellow down there who could get rid of her lep his leprosy. And the king said, by all means. And he, he, was, he was happy too because he loved Naaman. Naaman had made him a very powerful man. Naaman was an excellent commander. So the king of Syria said, go now. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed. He took with him ten talents of silver. He took 6,000 shekels of gold. He took 10 changes of clothing. It's easy to read over stuff like that because we don't understand these words, but uh, I took the time to look them up and what the values were. In Strong's Concordance, last, this copyright was 2014, uh, he says that the 10 talents of silver is equal to $182,000. The Ten t uh, the 6,000 shekels of gold was equal to $2,390,000. And the 10 sets of garments, more than likely royal array, they, they were, who knows what the value of that stuff was. Uh, the point is, the king gave Naaman all this stuff that was worth nearly $3 million so he could go down to Israel find that prophet, get himself healed, and then give the money to the prophet as reward for what he done for him. I mean, there's a lot of money coming Elias', Elias Elias's way. <clears throat> at last, uh, Naaman, he finally arrived at the home of Elisha. <clears throat> and Elisha sent a messenger to Naaman saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now here you are, your name, and you traveled all the way down from Syria. You're tired, you're dirty. You've come to be healed. You ask this man to heal you. And he doesn't come out of his house. What do you think? Naaman is a very powerful man. At this particular time in history, he may have been the second most powerful man in the world. A man like him expects people to ah and ooh when they see him because he is so powerful. Naaman's come all the way down to see this guy, a Jew no less, and he won't come out to see him. I got to believe that that just ticked him off right from the get-go. And then he gave him a silly command to get rid of leprosy. You wash in the Jordan, you dip seven times in the Jordan, your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. 
To him, that would have been the most silly thing he ever heard. What has water got to do with leprosy? Nobody's ever been cleansed from leprosy because they dipped in water. Lepers all over the world have been dipping in water all their lives, and they never got cleansed from it. How is water going to cleanse his lepers? It's like people ask us, how does water take away sin? People ask Elisha, how does water take away leprosy? It makes no sense. Well, what makes it a difference is that God said so. And when God says so, something's going to happen. When God told him to dip seven times, if he did, he would be healed. When God tells people to be immersed in water and they will be forgiven of their sins, it will happen and they'll be healed. What makes something important is not the act itself, the person who told them what to do. That's what makes it important. Well, Naaman didn't like this. He became angry. He went away. And he was saying to himself as he went away, I thought he would surely come out. He would stand, he would call upon the name of the Lord his God. He would wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I thought he would come out to see me. And then he would go through the general ritual that these prophets go through when they're doing their healings. He'd seen a lot of magicians back in Syria. He had seen healers back in Syria. He knew how they behave. They'd do a war dance. They'd hoop, they'd holler, they'd scream. They'd throw arrows at the sky. They did all kinds of silly things in order to heal somebody. And that's what Naaman was looking for. That's not what Elisha did. He said, just go dip seven times in the River Jordan. That's all it takes. And he was so angry because he knew this trip was a waste of time. Well, there was a, a, a girl there, and she told him, she said, you know, if he would have told you to do something hard, you'd have done it. Since this is so easy, why not just do it as long as we're here? And Naaman thought about it, and he said, well, we did come all this way, so he decided he dipped seven times in the Jordan. And just as Elisha said, bang, that leprosy was gone. He was clean, he was healed, and he was so happy. He went back to Elisha's house, and uh, he presented himself to Elisha. He returned. He and all of his aides, he came, he stood before Elisha, and he said, Indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. He's seen all them magicians back up in Syria. What did they do? Nothing. They didn't heal anybody. They just put on a big show. But they didn't heal anybody. Not people that were really ailing. But this man, he made leprosy go away. And he did it by the power of his God. Now, Naaman had all kinds of gods that he served. There's no telling how many gods they had. He had all kinds of gods that he served, and not one of those gods ever lifted a finger to help him. But Elisha's God did. And Naaman, there's one God. There's one God worth knowing. There's one God being, worth being attached to, and that's the God of Elisha. This is where the living God lives. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. <clears throat> Elisha responded, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him, Please take this. And he refused to take it. 
$2,572,000 plus 10 changes of royal attire. What was Elijah thinking? All he had to do was hold out his hand. It was his. He could have used it for, he could have built up the school of the prophets. He could have used this money to feed the poor and the hungry in Israel. There's so many things Elijah could have done with that money, but he would not take that money. He would not have anything to do with it. Not because the money was dirty, but because I think there was a principle employed that the Lord retold his apostles sometime later. Freely you have received, now freely I want you to give. It costs you nothing to get it, so give it away. Don't sell it. And this is a rule, apparently, that Elisha lived by. Elisha wouldn't take this money, but his servant, Gehazi, or Gehazi, however you like to say it, his servant Gehazi was of a different mind. He could take it, and he did. He went back to Naaman, and he said, Hey, we just got a messenger come from another town, and they need some help. Can you please give us some of that money? And Naaman gave him so much, I forgot how much it was. And he said, Here, maybe this will help. So Gehazi, he had his servants carry it to his house. He took it in his house, and he hid it. And now all is well. His wealth is hidden. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So he went to uh, Elisha because Elisha called for him. He went in and he stood before his master. And Elisha said, where did you go, Gehazi? His response, your servant did not go anywhere. I haven't gone anywhere. Elisha said, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Busted. Gehazi knew right then that Elisha knew what he did. And Elisha knew what he did because God knew what he did. He went to great lengths to hide his sin. But he was unsuccessful. He was unsuccessful. He had been with Elisha, I don't know how long. But Elisha depended on him for much. And apparently he was a pretty good servant up to this time. But when the opportunity presented itself, greed took control. And he had to have a piece of it. So he lied to everybody, and he took what wasn't supposed to be taken. Elisha said, is it, is it time to receive money, to receive clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen? Is it time to receive male and female servants? Is it time... Is this the time to take such things, Gehazi? It's not wrong to take such things. But is this the time to take it? Think about it. Naaman, he was the commander of the Syrian army. Syria has been raiding Israel. Syria has been killing Israelite people. Syria is an enemy of Israel. But now Naaman, the commander of the army, has come down to Israel and he has been cleaned of his leprosy. Do you think Naaman's attitude towards Israel is going to change? 
How happy would Naaman be that his leprosy was gone? What was the chances that he would go back down to Israel and, and, and make war with the people who healed him of his, his leprosy? I'd say the chances were probably slim to none. These were the people who healed him. He wanted no part of trying to destroy them. Is this the time, Gehazi, to take money? How much more valuable was the deed of Elisha when Elisha would not take a gift, when he would not be paid for his services? How much more, how greater did Elisha stand in the eyes of Naaman when he refused to take money and he lived like a pauper? Naaman's attitude towards Elisha and towards the God of Elisha had grown exponentially. He said when he went back to Syria, he was going to worship Jehovah every day. He said, please ask God to forgive me. I will have to go into the house of the temple of my king's gods. I will have to be there with him because that's my job. But please ask God to forgive me for my doing that. But as for me, I worship Jehovah. Is this the time, Gehazi? To pull a stunt like you pulled? There's no telling how much he might have jeopardized with his selfish, selfish move. The point is, though, he thought he could hide his sin, and he was wrong. Naaman, commander of the army of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor. Notice the words now. By Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. The Lord, overseeing the works of Naaman, made it possible for him to be strong enough to come down into Israel and to punish Israel. He used Naaman as an instrument of punishment. And after Naaman had fulfilled that purpose, the Lord permitted him to go to Israel and be healed of his leprosy. I think the Lord may have thought very kindly towards Naaman. But Gehazi, he may have messed it all up. Is it time, Gehazi? Had he thought about somebody besides himself, maybe it would have been different. Elisha finishes up, therefore, Gehazi, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. Your descendants, they're going to suffer because of the deeds of their father. Because he's going to be a leper, they're going to be lepers because of their close proximity to him. The sin of Gehazi was going to be shared by many people. He went out from Elisha's presence, leprous, and he was as white as snow. He thought he could get away with sin, but he was wrong. Recklessness hurts. It hurt Elisha. It hurt Israel. It hurt Naaman. It hurt the Syrians. It even hurt Gehazi. And more than the leprosy, he realized his guilt. And it even hurt the Lord God of heaven because now there's another prodigal on his way to eternal 
condemnation. Moses said, be sure your sin will find you out. And that's all I want to leave you with today. Be sure your sin will find you out. If you have sin, just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Unnecessary baggage.